0: morning. It is our pleasure to have you here to worship with us. Whether you're here in person, which all prefer, or you're joining us on the live stream, uh, we're glad that we can worship together. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel. Again, we're gonna continue our journey going verse by verse through this book. And today we come to the end note of the Ammonite War. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're gonna begin today in verse 26. This is God's word. May we hear it and receive it as such. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites, then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come. We come to worship you, to pray, to sing songs of your glory and goodness, to retell and be reinvigorated by the story of the gospel once more. God, we ask that your spirit would be unleashed upon us and within us, stirring faith in us. Father, we ask that you would renew and strengthen us and that you would use the preaching of your word to accomplish your purposes. That faith would come by hearing as you have promised it will. Father, we thank you this morning for the gifts that you have given us. But more than all things, Lord, we are thankful for you and your work revealing yourself to us. And we ask you would further that work that you would reveal yourself to us this morning. Give us eyes that we might see. Give us ears that we could hear. And give us hearts to receive all that you have for us. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree. Amen. In many ways, the passage before us today is quite anticlimactic. We've seen a saga of deep sin and suffering. We've seen vile and horrible evil perpetrated even by God's leaders. And we have seen the tragedy and failure of human flaws. My hope is that in the last few weeks, we've been gripped by the ever-present reality that all things are not as they should be. And that that begins in the hearts of men. So as we come to this conclusion, we come understanding that this is very much an end note of this Ammonite war. And we must remember that it is this war, this war against the Ammonites, that serves as the historical background for the entire David, Bathsheba, Uriah fiasco. It is the Ammonite War in its context that holds all of Second Samuel ten through twelve together, binds it as a single unit. It's also important to remember that though chapters ten through twelve record so little of these wars that they were serious, that they were perilous battles. After all, David and Israel were conducting these battles on foreign soil, which always multiplies the risks and difficulties of war. You're fighting against an enemy who knows the terrain and who they get to set the battle fronts in their agenda. But the passage is so anticlimactic because it just brings closure to this problem that was left unresolved all the way back in 2 Samuel 10, verse 14. I know it was weeks ago, so I'll remind us that it is Ammon and the people of Ammon who see that Aram, that's the Syrians, had fled the battle. Do you remember the pincer move that was taking place? In order to beat Israel, there was sort of this conscription of their own people, but then also they bought and paid for mercenary help, and they were squeezing Israel on both sides, and Israel's generals were split in their intention. So one was fighting to the rear and one fighting to the front, and they were promising to support each other. If one was starting to lose, they would send more troops there, and if the other one was gaining sway, they could work back and forth to accomplish this uh, victory. And so, we see that on both fronts, the two armies withdrew. The Syrians back to their gathering place, and then we're told that the Ammonites fleed to Rabbah, which was the fortified city capital of Ammon. In fact, by the time Jesus is on the scene the whole area had been rebuilt and renamed. Philadelphia was its new name, and it was one of the league of Greek-speaking cities called the Decapolis. In other words, because of the war that Israel fought in this moment, the trajectory for the people that lived there changed permanently. And that change led, over time, to complete redesign and re-allegiance and even new city-states. So in chapter 10, we abruptly moved from the battlefront in Ammon to the royal bedroom in Jerusalem. And now we return our attention to these front lines in Rabbah. And there we find that the general Joab, one of David's chief right-hand leaders, was mopping up the final skirmishes of this defeat, of Ammon's total defeat. We see this in verse 26. Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites, and he took the royal city. And Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I've fought against Rabbah, moreover I've taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together, and encamp against the city, and take it lest I take the city and it be called in my name. Joab's having a little fun with David, basically saying, hey, if I lay the final blow, if I'm the one to remove the crown off the king's head, then guess what? I'm in command. I'll wear the crown if you don't want to come get it. I'll rename the city after, oh, I don't know, me. This is what powerful men do, isn't it? We reshape our world to suit our priorities. So Joab's poking David a little bit, essentially saying, get your us over here. Let's finish this. It's done. So he invites him to come. Come and lay the final blow. And convention calls for the king to make the strike, to make and strike the finishing blow. Personally, Joab's sending to David the awareness that it's time for him to come to Rabbah, and finish up, and he's having some fun with David as he does so. This is often how people feel in the conclusions of battle. The victorious side, playful, celebratory. We will see its contrast later in our text today for those who are not victorious. So David here goes to Rabbi. we read verse 29, David gathers the troops that are with him to join the troops that were there. They're all gathered together, and they fought and took Rabbah, this this royal city. It's important for us to remember that this is a fortified city, and that this would be, in their own ideas, uh, a, a bastion of safety, right? This is, in some sense, a last resort, If everything is being conquered in the towns and villages, you withdraw to the fortified city for safety, for protection, for survival even. And so it is this city that is being uh, waged war against and sieged. And in this, apparently, Israel fairly easily took this fortified city. And in doing so, we read in verse 30 that David took the crown of their king from his head. This is quite symbolic and I would imagine incredibly humiliating for a king. The one whose word is obeyed without question is now kneeling before a conquering king and handing over the symbol of your authority and power. Notice that we're told how significant this crown was. It was forged out of an entire talent of gold and in it a single giant precious stone. In other words, this is not an ordinary small crown for a tiny city-state, okay? This is an enormously wealthy country who lavish that wealth upon the head of their king. There's great symbolism here, but great humiliation for the king himself. But if the king is humiliated, aren't the people humiliated too? That's their mighty leader. That's their sovereign in the land. And if he's forced to kneel, what are they forced to do? This can be a viscerally emotional moment where they can withdraw and and feel just incredible volumes of grief and sadness. Their rule as a people is ended. And they're now going to be subjects, maybe even slaves of a conquering kingdom. It's fascinating to me, from a literary perspective, how few details we are given in this moment about this battle. It almost seems like the Ammonites don't really matter that much, right? The story is about David and and Israel and the Ammonites are sort of this casualty of the story And not many details are given to us. But this removal of the crown and the replacement on the king's head is very similar to our more modern day convention of surrendering your sword. We have the privilege of living in the county of York. Many of us are in the surrounding area around the county of York. And this plays a big significant role in the history of America, doesn't it? You can go see, if you desire, the tiny cave that Cornwallis hid in, sending out his second in command and third in command to go offer his sword to the people who were conquering England in this land, ending the rule of the, of the British Empire in the colonies. You will not be impressed by the cave. We've later since put a little gate in front of it so you can't really go in. But you can peer, and as you peer around, it's pathetic. But so scared was General Cornwallis, the highly decorated British general, that he thought, if I surrender my sword personally, I might also be surrendering my head personally. After all, the colonists were savages, right? Presbyterian savages, but savages nonetheless. That's what's happening in this moment. The people are conquered. Would you know if you were a conquered people? If you didn't know it before, you would know it as the crown gets removed, yes? So David takes the crown, puts it upon his own head, and then we're told at the end of verse 30 that he brings out the spoil of the city. And, you know, cities have lots of money because they're the central commerce and fortified protection. This is where the bank is for your entire culture and community. And the vaults get emptied and the loot taken away. Israel brings out, which means takes possession of, a great amount of valuables. Might be gold, silver, cloth, whatever. Cattle for sure. And then in verse 31, we're told that David brings out the people who were in that city and he sets them to labor, And then we're told the instruments that were distributed for their labor. And this is where we get a clue to what's going on. He gives them saws and picks, iron axes, and he makes them either pass through or form bricks at the kilns. In other words, what David is doing here is forcing the conquered people to dismantle their fortified city. In other words, he's taking away their protection to stand against his rule or the rule of anyone. The language here can mean that the Ammonites were forced to rip apart their own fortifications in their own royal city. And then we're told that David did this to all the cities of the Ammonites. They are a thoroughly and completely defeated people. They have been conquered, and their identity will no longer remain. They are now, despite having been foreign soil, they now belong to Israel. And David is the king of whom they are now pledged fidelity. David does this, establishes it, oversees it, And then he and and his part of the army returned to Jerusalem. And that's the final note. Aren't you thoroughly amazed in the climax of this exciting story? Passages like this are not sexy to preach. They're not sexy to study on a Tuesday morning in your devotional time. They're just not despite having all the elements of war and battle and instruments and conquered people. Maybe Quentin Tarantino could make a good movie out of this. But I think for most of us, we're like, like you didn't tell us hardly anything about the war. And yet, why bookend it if it doesn't matter? Right? I think that what's happening here is that as the author is unfolding this story for us, we're supposed to see the details that are missing and evaluate them. In fact, the older a narrative is, the older a story is, especially ones that are written down and recorded, the more important the details presented are and the more important details Unpresented become. And I think there's two reasons for this. One, you never write down the things that everybody knows. Right? You guys have Thanksgiving coming up and there are probably some family traditions that you have. There's probably some things that happen at Nana's house that don't happen at Mimi's house. Right? There's some dynamics in play in culture and in the relationship that culture has with tradition. But you don't have to write down for the next generation things that they've grown up immersed in. So if you ask a kid, what are the traditions of your family, they might give you traditions that the parents go, yeah, we've done that like twice. I don't know why you think we do that every year, like we don't do that every year, like you're saying it wrong. But for the kids, they experience it in such a way and attach a loyalty to it that it instantly becomes all the time, which is fine but we don't have to write those things down. We don't journal that. We journal our experience of it or our reaction to it or whatever interrupted it or changed it, reformed it, but we don't write down the things that everybody knows. Second, when a writer in this era, without an internet that holds it all free for us, or a printing press that makes it easy to reproduce at volume, When you're hand scribing with ink on papyrus, expensive paper, yes, ink, costly, yes, you're not going to add things that don't matter. And so what we do in understanding literature at this point, I really feel weird giving a literature lesson in the middle of my sermon because I was terrible at English growing up. I owe a big apology to, like, Mrs. Blackburn and Mrs. Vogel and a whole host of other teachers. What's not said contrasts with what is said. What details are provided stands in contrast to the details that aren't. So we get most of a chapter on this war. And then we get two chapters on David's fiasco with Bathsheba and Uriah. And then we get this tiny footnote to bookend and close the story. What are we to interpret there? With so little literary attention given, it becomes quite easy for us to overlook or even forget how much the strain of war adds to the emotional spiritual volatility both of the soldiers and of their loved ones. The Hebrews hearing and learning of this story, recounting it and remembering it, view it differently than we do just watching it, reading it, hearing it. And yet we're told that all Scripture is given by God to us to grow us, to stretch us, that we might know and understand. And that God didn't overshare is a central commitment of the leadership of our church. Your elders are passionately convicted that we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We do so so that we don't get to rock on our own hobby horses because we want the whole counsel of God, yes? Even the anticlimactic bookends of war. And so it is upon us, it's incumbent upon us, that we answer the question, what's the theological witness of this text? We've seen the severity of David's sin. We've seen the overwhelming, shattering nation of his shame. David's sin and repentance have taken up Almost the whole story, right? What are we to learn? His sin and repentance have been on full display in these chapters. So what are we to conclude comparatively? I think it's this. The Ammonites don't really matter. It's not that God didn't love them or, or have a plan for them. I'm not talking in that manner. I'm talking about the comparative time and ink spent in telling this story. The Ammonites don't really matter. They're not the central element of this story. They're the background moment. They're the setting, if you will. But I think the focus, the comparison we're supposed to make here, is that the obedience and holiness... Of Israel's leaders, especially their king, is of far greater significance than any number of neighboring nations. Does that make sense? Just by volume, we see how important David's moment of failure and flaw is. The significance is found in the obedience and holiness of Israel's leaders. It's also found in the holiness of Yahweh's anointed as he wages war on the deepest and truest battlefield. The human heart, right? As we're immersed in this moment of horrific sin, grave failure, By David, we see in contrast the human battlefronts taking place as minor compared to this true battle that's under inspection here. It's the the battle we fight against pernicious sin. That's the battlefront of greatest significance. It's the heart of God's people. That's where the time has been spent. That's where the details are to be found. Throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, when you take these books as a whole, we've seen many leaders in Israel, yes? We've seen many different ones come and go. We began with Eli. Do you remember as he saw Hannah praying, thinking she was drunk? We see Eli's terrible sons, trying not to remember them. We see Samuel, who is kind of the best of the bunch for a long time, but not without his flaws. Of course, we've seen Saul and Eliab and Abner and and Joab, and all of them are flawed. Some of them are deeply, severely flawed. It is only by the grace of Yahweh let me say this again. It is only by the grace of Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-imposing, covenant-keeping God. It is only by the grace of Yahweh that David was chosen. It's only by the grace of Yahweh that David was anointed. It's only by the grace of Yahweh that David was empowered and coronated and installed as the king of a united Israel. Do not credit David with what God has done. Do not contrast the nobility of David against Saul without identifying the graciousness of God at work in his heart, mind, and actions. If there's one lesson that overrides, one thread that is most dominant, one idea or theme for the entire book of Samuel, it's that all human leadership is flawed. It might be to varying degrees. It might be in different ways. But all human leadership is flawed, even in the very real, eternal kingdom of God on earth. I think we carry, to some degree rightly, to some degree wrongly, the idea that the leaders of God's people are better. In some ways, we're held to different standards. And and don't worry, all the elders in this church and many others tremble at the idea that we will be held extra accountable as we stand before the God of glory who judges us and our ministries. Don't think I don't lose sleep once in a while. But it is grace that transforms the men who hold these offices. In other words, the kingdom of God, if there's to be one on earth, must be established and maintained by grace. By grace. Until the true son of David comes. This is one of the great insights we have to all of Samuel. We keep studying this kingdom of God. We keep hearing about this hesed way. And we see David understanding it and living it out we also see him failing it and denying it, ignoring it, forgetting it. But the Hesed way is God's way. And it is coming to earth and unfolding piece by piece, bit by bit, but always imperfectly until when? Till Jesus comes and the true son of David in all his glorious perfections can be seen. And yet seeing who we didn't see. Most of us, if we had been there, would be the same. Right? This is God's king over God's kingdom. This is the faithful covenant keeper doing what he has promised to do before there were stars, before there was land and sea. In the eternal mind of God, they pledged, this is the, in Latin we call it the pactum salutis, the agreement of salvation, the pact that God has within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, to bring about this eternal kingdom, and the redemption that would be required to undo everything we've done. The contrast here shows us a deeper and truer battlefield, a deeper reality of the human heart as the true mission field. If the kingdom of God is to exist, it will be led by imperfect people. Until the true son of David came, conquered, and will return. From that day forward, our flaws gone. You guys dream about that day? I really think we're supposed to. Not picture it all out and and novelize it, I mean dream about it, glory in it, wonder what it's like to be existing in a place without shame, in a place without suffering, in a place where all our service is perfect, all our prayers perfect, all our celebrations perfect. Perfect. And all the flaws, all the failures, all the sin, permanently expunged from our life and from all creation. That day is coming. And David doesn't bring it. That day is coming and Samuel can only tell us about it. That day is coming and we wait eagerly. Right? How many parables in Jesus' day do we find in the Gospels about waiting eagerly for the return? About understanding that while it is day, we work. And that night is coming when we will rest. One of the most amazing and, and essential elements of our faith is that that future state of perfection is breaking in to our everyday lives? Are we as perfect as we should be? But is God doing a work in you? If you know Christ, if you've been united to Christ by faith, and that's the only way it can happen, then God is at work in you and through you and around you. And guess what? Your experience of that work is a terrible measuring stick of what God is actually doing in your life. All those days you feel distant from him, he's intimately transforming you. All those days you leave your Bible dusty on a shelf or right there on a bedside stand, never to be used. More used as a coaster than a sanctifier. He's still working. It doesn't mean you're free to leave your Bible dusty. Is that what I'm saying? You're in the wrong place if that's your goal. But instead, he's transforming you. One of the ways I love to describe that is that the Holy Spirit is every day in every way renewing you and preparing you for citizenship and glory. That's what you get to dream about. That's what you get to long for. This is also part of why we mourn our sin. We see and grieve over these flaws and imperfections in our leaders and in ourselves, leading us to long more and more and more for the one without flaws, our true and eternal king. And he will take all our crowns. Right? Don't we gladly take our own crowns off and throw them at his feet? That's a picture of his rule in our lives. Now, some of you might look around and be like, I'm pretty sure Shirley has more gold in her crown than I do. It doesn't matter. Your crown is yours temporarily, until you cast it joyfully at the feet of the king of kings. Until you remove it from your own head and say, rule me. You have conquered me. I've been united to Christ. I no longer live. I'm crucified to Christ. I no longer live the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the Hesed way that we've been talking about. Take your crown off and give it to the feet of Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of his name above all other names. That's what we see in this text by contrast, is how desperate we are for the rule of Christ in the people of God. All human leadership is flawed. Until it's final. And on that day, no flaws remain. Speed the day. Speed the day where I get to stand in glory before my Savior and render all my praise perfectly to him. And train for that day. Every day until it comes. Hallelujah. I have a pastoral note. We read back in 2 Samuel 12, earlier in this chapter, verses 11 and 12. And I did not hit them hard in the moment. We talked about them, but not thoroughly. I want to give one more footnote to this. Verse 11. But when she brought them near him to eat... He took hold, oh, nope, wrong verse. Let's go back to the correct chapter, Kevin. Here we go, Twelve, eleven. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun, meaning all people there's this element of chaos that is coming that is promised in this rebuke of David. Remember, God's judgment on David was that he did evil, that all of it was evil. It was a scorn and scourge against God personally. And part of what that means is that we will see trouble from David's house Pretty much for the rest of the book. David's sin will be echoed and even magnified, if you can imagine. You don't have to imagine long, it's coming. Next week in the Saga of Tamar. So I want to invite all parents and guardians, please read the next chapter this week. We've always maintained as a church body that the Bible is not G-rated. That will immensely be on display next week. We will once again see grave flaw in the life of leaders and people in David's house. So as a result, the pastor study will be available. There's going to be an awesome video for them to receive the word of God We do not want you not to come. That double negative was terrible. We still want you to come. Come and worship. Come and sing and pray. But for the sermon, for those who's probably not ready to enter into these evils so deeply, we want an alternative for you. And so the pastoral study will be available to you Uh, We usually have kind of third graders and up. My wisdom and advice, you're free to parent and rule as you desire, but my wisdom and advice is that we're going to take that chapter very seriously and a little slowly. Imagine that. And so it's my recommendation that for our younger, normal people who are in this setting, probably take advantage of that. And I'll put out a video later this week you can look forward to. We just want to use this unusual opportunity well. Sound good? Let's pray. We agree with this text. We agree with your work. We agree with this holy moment. As David's evil is overcome by your grace, we ask that you would continue to help us be truthful with ourselves before you about our own flaws, about our own sin, about our own rebellion and treason against you. And God, we ask that in your mercy, you would show us our sin and that you would take it from us, that you would overwhelm us in your goodness and your kindness. Your word tells us that it is your kindness to us that leads us to repentance, not the other way around. So God, we ask that you would show us our sin, that we might know how greater our Savior is. And come and bring people who take you, your word, your truth, and the power of your kingdom's work seriously to lead not only our church, but all of your churches until you return and we become one united eternal body. Lord, we ask that you would speed the day. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people agree.